You are listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. So I shared a lot of science last week, and for some of you who are like, oh, that was great, and some of you are like, oh my goodness, I thought I was done with this. I did not want to study science later on. So huge disclaimer, we're going to do a little bit of science up front here, and we're going to move on. But I want to talk to you about who we are as people and where we came from. Last week, as I shared that, uh, you know, it takes just as much faith to believe that God made the world. It takes just as much faith to believe that the world basically invented itself. You boil down all of the theories and all of the, the, the things behind it. And, and we talked about how mathematically that's impossible. We talked about how the laws of physics say that's impossible. And even biology says you're just really, the, the links aren't there. Well, this morning, we're going to really talk specifically about who we are as people, and what is our identity? Where does that come from? Where do we come from, and does it really matter? So read with me in chapter 1 of Genesis. Start with in, in verse 26. So this would have been the sixth day of creation, and the Bible says this, Then God said, Let us make man, really mankind, in our image after our likeness. And let them have, because right off the bat, God, this is going to multiply. He's going from one. By the way, the man in Hebrew, I don't drop a lot of Hebrew and Greek because I'm really never trying to impress anyone, but it's, it's Adam. So Adam, you know, Adam is just like, it's just the word for mankind is what that means. So if your name is Adam, you just mean mankind. That's you know, that's where your name is. So anyway, and so he said, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We like that. When we go to the doctors, we like the earth being subdued. It's called medicine. You know, we like engineers that give us things and design things. That's all a result of the subduing of the earth, and we're grateful for it. And we have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then jumping down to the very end, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So I want to talk to you. There's really only a couple of possibilities of where we come from. There's not five or six or seven. There's only two. And we're going to spend, I hope, most of our time in our Bible. But I want to talk about an alternative view that's, that is common and is popular today. And for some of you, are like, this just doesn't interest me. Just hang on. We'll get to the Bible, all right? Because there are our young adults in our room and our students. We live in a culture where you're made to feel like you're just dumb and don't have a brain and just are superstitious if you don't believe, you know, if you do dare believe that there's a God that created things. And I kind of am trying to demonstrate to you that that's not reality. Like, we need to think a little bit and, and understand these things. So, Tom, I didn't talk to you before the service and I neglected, so you hang with me in the slides. You already know there's a lot of pictures in there. So go to the, go to the first picture slide, if you would, Tom. 
So I want to show you, this comes out of Encyclopedia Britannica, so I'm not making this up, okay? And this is a slide of, in essence, we're going to talk about the, just the, the human evolution side. You know, evolution would say, as I talked about last time, there's kind of a vertical, everything started with a single cell and multiple cell creatures and then creatures without backbones and, you know, and on and on, and the fish and then the reptiles and the birds and the mammals, and then finally you get up to where we are as humans, kind of this vertical thing. Well, this is picturing it sideways, just kind of the ultimate human. So see the, 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 if you look at the bottom one, we'll start at the bottom. That's the gorilla. That's, a, that's the line, supposedly the evolutionary line of gorillas. All of these lines meet in the middle because evolution is saying that we all came from, you know, ultimately the same thing and that we ultimately evolved from, you know, pre-primate pre kind of animals that chimpanzees and gorillas uh, came from as well. And so the bottom's gorilla. Next one up on the right-hand side is the chimpanzee. The one above that is Homo sapiens. That's you and me, all right? That's who we are. And then you'll see these other classifications. Neanderthals are up above, and uh, I can't pronounce that other one. Heidelberg, I guess they found it in Germany or someplace. I don't know. Then Homo erectus, and then uh, Homo habilis. I don't really know what habilis means. I didn't take time to look that up. So that's the kind of the evolutionary tree of things, okay? And the whole thought process is that this came about, I mean, Darwin wrote his Origin of Species, and that became popular in what, the 1850s, second part of the 1800s. And from that time period on into the early 1900s, scientists got excited and they were running around the world trying to find evidence of evolution. And so they would dig in the ground and they would find a collection of bones and they would declare we have found missing links. The problem is, is a lot of the missing links that they found look like the next slide. And this next slide, you're going to see that there's a lot missing, and it's not the link. It's like most of the skeleton is not there. So if you were around, like I think it was 1974, they found the skeleton, and they nicknamed it Lucy. So you might have popularly heard of Lucy. And, and most of the scientists would say, well, we found these skulls, and they have features. This skull is smaller than that one, and some are bigger than that one, and some, and they compare all of this. But the problem is, is most of the skeletons they find look like this, and you can't really compare that skull to much of anything in the world. Lucy was about three and a half feet tall. And they didn't, and, and the big distinguishing, you know, you look at the kind of the, the evolution of it, they kind of study the, the structure of the, the head, and then they look at the knees, because they want to say, did this animal walk upright, or did it crawl around on the ground? Something you need to realize is that there are primates today that are really pretty comfortable walking upright. Like, that's not a clearly delineating, distinguishing factor. That's not popularly known. It's not out there a lot. But the problem is, is that this really just is ultimately, it's three and a half feet tall, is really a primate. Like, go back to the previous slide. where Lu This is Lucy. And Lucy, see the Australopithecus? That's where Lucy is. So ultimately, on the far right-hand side, the Homo habilis and all of those, those really are all people. Can we get rid of the genus, species, and science? The left, Australopithecus and all of those, those are primates. Now let me go a little bit further with you down this line. Go, go two more slides down if you would, Tom. I want to show you a couple of skulls here. Just hang with me. We won't be at this more than five more minutes or so, all right? So stay with me. So I'm not going to tell you what these species are just yet, but I want you to compare the difference of these two. So I want you to notice the top one. See the big, the big it's called a sagittal crest in the back? That's for muscles attaching to the head that come down around the jaw. In other words, powerful jaws, think predators, okay? 
sharp teeth, right? Not a lot of teeth for like chewing seeds. Like this is a meat eater. This looks like something you don't want to meet at night. Like it's going to, you know, chew your heart out, if you will. Now, notice the one down below doesn't have that big, that big crest, all right? Notice the one up top has this big bone around the, before the eye socket. The bottom doesn't have it. Notice that the, proportionally, the one at the top has a, the eye socket that's very near the top proportionally of the head and how strong kind of that eyebrow area is. And the one down below doesn't have anything nearly like that. And the one at the bottom is kind of, kind of smooshed up and the nose is almost kind of like, kind of like, you know, up like that. The teeth are pretty similar, but when you look at everything else, like it's very different. They're two very different things. We'll go to the next slide. I want you to recognize that both of those are the exact same species. They're not two different creatures. The top one's a Great Dane, and the bottom is a Chihuahua. And they look very different in their bone structures. So I want you to get the picture. Scientists have been going around the world and finding bones and skulls and measuring little differences like, oh, this one's clearly a different species than that one, and this is different from that. And I'm just trying to say, folks, it ain't that easy. You know, and it's easy to over-extrapolate and over-assume that you understand what things really are. So if you kind of go back up to that first slide, if you would, Tom. I'm, yeah, keep going, yep. So I'm really comfortable saying the ones on the right, these are humans. The ones on the left are primates. And it's so interesting that when, now that we're doing genetic sequencing and all of those kinds of things that are happening, that uh, you look at the nucleotides, that's the DNA stuff, like the real science nerds in the room, the guanine and cytosine and thymine, those all living creatures have four basic kind of elements that make us up four, not 10 and 20 and thousands, four. And they just come in different sequences and pairs and it's responsible for everything in the world. And when you study all of those, the so-called Neanderthal pre-human are 99.7 identical to us. 99.7. Point 0.3 is not a whole lot. Like, there's not a big difference there. Yeah, the skull shape looks a little bit different, but it's still pretty similar. And they're noticed, you can't see it in the picture as well, but, you know, they're kind of noted with, like, a heavy brow on the front. Go to the slide down with the soccer player, Tom, if you would. It should be, like, the fourth to fifth slide in. Look at this guy. Modern guy, right, wearing a soccer jersey. I want you to notice his forehead. If you know anything about the skull, there's not a lot of fat and skin there, right? This dude has some pretty heavy eye structure going on in there. He's still a homo sapien. Like his skull is going to look very differently when you, whenever he dies and gets the x-rays, looking different than a lot of other people in the common world. In fact, as you began, as I was doing kind of refreshing myself and current research and all that, just... Within 10 years, the last 10 years, scientists are being saying like, huh, we found a bunch of these skeletons, and now, and these are, these are evolutionary scientists. I'm not talking even creation side. A lot of these, I think, are just the same species. Like, we thought they had a little bit differences, but really we're discovering there's not a lot of these missing chains and everything, that things are looking a lot more similar. So go back, if you would, Tom, to the first slide again. I want you to notice that while on one hand you can look at this and you know in sequence kind of like they don't have they don't have any missing links the the the, the numbers across the top are supposedly millions of years ago and they don't have representations of any of those so-called connecting points and if if the evolutionary line were true 
they would not be struggling to find one missing link every millions of years or so. Like it would just be throughout. There really are no missing links, folks. They're just, they're, they're not there. <laughs> it's, in fact, to really even just look at this, like there should be so many that are automatically found along the way. Because if not, and if evolution were true, then that would mean we just jumped from one individual and we jumped from one species to a completely different species all at once. And nobody in science has ever seen that happen. The population would just gradually change over time and we're missing those entirely. So I'm trying to point this out for our younger minds in the congregation, those that are trying to work through this. You've got to think through what's being said along the way. In fact, when you study, when you look at it, I, I looked on this one website. You know Pfizer, the, the company that makes all the drugs? A lot of science going on with Pfizer, right? Smart people, I hope they're smart because they're sure injecting us and putting all kinds of stuff, right, into our bodies. Well, they unpacked the, the, the similarities, and I don't know why they did this, but in an article, and did you know that the, the, the genetic material of a banana compared to you and me is 60% the same? 60%. So if we're following the evolutionary chain of thought, like when you have a banana and slice it in your bowl of cereal, you're eating your cousin. Is really kind of the, like, fruit fly, 60% to you. And folks... <laughs> It really, I, I'm, I'm really trying to be like fair and not be sar sarcastic and cynical, but people are believing just this whole thing without thinking about it. And they recognize and they say, well, the reason we share 60% of the same genetic material as a banana and a fruit fly and all of that, and they go on with primates, they say it's because evolution is true. And I want you to recognize something. As soon as science takes a step and says, here's the data. The data is we share 60% of the genetics. But as soon as they say that's because of evolution and evolution explains it, they've moved from scientist to interpreter. And you don't realize it, but they've gone from objectivity to subjectivity. And they have introduced something that is not science-based whatsoever. If you're not in a science world, there are laws of science that are immutable and accepted. The law of gravity, the law of entropy. Hundreds of years later, or however many years since evolution, evolution is still a theory. And the evolutionists are arguing and debating. And there are really smart people that are not even Christian that don't hold to evolution. All right? And in my thinking... I look at the four substances that are in the world, right? Those four nucleotides and all of that. And I just say, you know what? Rather than that being evidence of creation or evidence of evolution, which is an interpretation, it's not database, I think there's another equally legitimate, and because I am a person of faith, I accept the Bible, that it actually speaks to that there's one author that created all of those things and that put them together and use those. And just because that there might be similarities with all of these things doesn't mean that there is a cause, that there is a natural progression. Are you familiar with the concept of correlation versus causation? Again, some of you are like, yeah, Sean, you're just, I don't care. Like, can we just say Jesus loves me? Like, I just, can we just sing that right now? You're losing me. I'm like, hang in there, folks, because a lot of our young adults 
are being just ridiculed and made fun of that, that you're just dumb if you believe in God. Correlation versus causation are, is, is misunderstood culturally around us. Like, for example, for a long time, uh, if you did it, studies have shown that you're healthy, you know, healthy people drink a glass of wine. Was it once a day or once a week or something like that? The studies have shown you live longer than all of it. Well, that's correlation, not causation, because what they don't, aren't telling you is, is that, well, those people also tend to have better jobs because alcohol is not cheap. They probably have access to good health care. They're also living a lifestyle of running and exercise and that there's some other things going there and, and that's going on that just because studies show there's a correlation doesn't mean causation. If you go out and start drinking a glass of wine and think you're doing something healthy, it's actually not good science. It's actually kind of dumb. To be actually honest with you, there, it's becoming clearer all alcohol is a carcinogen. Like if you can use alcohol to sterilize things outside of your body, it's doing something inside of your body in reality too. Let me show you a funny graph that helps us a little bit, that explains this a little bit more. Go to the, I think it's just the next one. Is it in there, Tom? I hope it is. I added it this morning. But it should be the last slide, I think, of the pictures. Well, I could talk about him. Is there another one after that one? Oh, okay, it didn't get in there. So there's a study that was, that was to demonstrate correlation versus causation. Leave him up there, because I'll come back to him in a minute. That showed the divorce rate in Maine compared to the margarine consumption in the U.S. <laughs> over time. And the graph, this is legit, and the graph shows them exactly the same. Well, it's okay if you eat margarine. It doesn't mean you're more likely to get divorced, all right? Or if you stay away from it, my marriage is going to last because I'm eating margarine. Like we, there are so many things that are a correlation that are not causation. Just because there are similar elements that are used in the makeup and the DNA and genetic material doesn't mean causation. That's what evolution presupposes. It just means there's correlation, and there can be multiple explanations for that along the way. It's not saying that causation is impossibility. I will grant you that. I haven't disproven evolution, but I'm at least showing you that evolution is not nearly the slam dunk that people make it out to be. In fact, if you study a, an artist an example of that, my daughter was talking about this this morning, but you can go back and study artists who have died and they determine paintings, did this artist paint this picture or not, and they'll get brush strokes and colors and all of those things. One creator who has tendencies and to use the same colors over in different ways and do things. That doesn't mean that each painting is an evolutionary result of the next painting, it just means that there's one painter that painted them. Yeah, there's a correlation, but not a causation. In fact, to be real honest with you, and to kind of poke in the eye a little bit of evolutionists, this is, this is uh, a Cro-Magnon man, okay? Cro-Magnon, again, think, you know, one step between Neanderthal and us. This was, this skull was found, I remember it was 1800s or 1900s. This, uh, uh, I don't know, forensic artist, whatever person kind of said, well, this is probably about what this skull would have looked like in person. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't, that looks like a normal human being to me. Does it not to you? When you look up and study, like Cro-Magnon man is just a human being. And paleontologists call him Cro-Magnon because they lived in caves. 
and they, you know, they used tools and they made art on the walls, but they had trade routes and all kinds of stuff. And I look at that and I'm like, I think they lived in caves because they were smart. Their buildings are still there. Like their home is still standing after how many years? And who's but what to say they were just hunting camps, you know? And guys are looking for something to do and they drew and doodled on the walls in the middle of the night. Like I just... You know, let, can we not be quite so racist and call somebody because of the way they look and they're designed and maybe their artwork like you're something different than a human, typical human being? In fact, you start following some of these things down the line, there's really some deep assumptions in here. World War II and Nazi Germany would never happen were it not for evolution. The whole racism came out of that predicated saying, oh, well, if there's an evolutionary chain, which of us as humans are more fit and on the front end of that evolutionary development? So we need to be careful that we don't just, you know, accept everything that's out there. There is a lot of subjectivity and a lot of bias and a lot of error in the so-called science. So I've said all that to give confidence to our students to say, you know what? Study it and examine it, not disproving it, but saying, I don't see the missing links. And I think it takes just as much of a jump to believe in all of that as it does to believe what we just read a moment ago. So let me give you four things quickly, and a lot of my time is done. I want you to recognize that in Genesis, what I just read is that we have an identity as people that God have made in his image. We have a responsibility we have a biology that also includes our sexuality, and then we have a community. So our, our, our identity, if the, if the evolutionary world is true, we're all an accident. There's nothing in charge of us. In fact, ultimately, we ought to be able to do whatever we want to do because this is an evolutionary world, and we ought to be able to not, we don't have to follow laws or anything. Everything falls apart. We become completely self in charge of our life. It's not a surprise in the U.S. as people have more and more kind of thrown God to the side. We see more and more struggles following the law and more and more crime and more and more kind of just people are struggling with who they are and, and following those things because when you understand who we're made and how we're made and that God made us in His image, it creates and shapes everything in your life. And what the Bible tells us is that He made us different than all of His other creation. None of the animals, none of the mammals, none of the primates, none of the fish in the sea, nothing else did he make in his likeness, like he said in, in chapter 1, verse 27, that he made us in his own image. Now, God is not physical, so it doesn't mean that we physically look like God. But what it means is, is that we have a, on the inside, there is a soul, a spirit with us, that God is spirit, that Jesus tells us. And so he made us similar in some ways. We are not, not, we have never existed for forever like God did, but our souls do live forever. And in the process, he gave us a mind to reason. He gave us a, a heart. He gave us uh, emotions. He made us all that what we are on the inside, the ability to choose, the ability to reason, the ability to value, ability to, to work things and through things and problem solve. He gave us a, a connection to Him. Because we're made in His image, we can relate to Him in ways better than we could any other creature on this earth. You might relate to your dog in some ways, but there are it's far less of a connection 
than the, you can have with the God in heaven. The God in heaven can speak to you in complexity, in an abstractness, in ways that no other animal can ever understand those things. That we are amazing creatures that God has made different from everything else. That means for us, and I'm going to give you some implications along the way, that means that every person is valuable to God and to us. That means that God didn't make us by accident. It means that He breathed into us the breath of life. None of the other animals did that. He just spoke and they existed. Dogs became dogs and poof, they were there. But God made us of the dust of the ground and He got personal. He breathed, and I don't know metaphysically how this all worked because God's Spirit, Sean, you explain it to me, I can't. But what the Bible is telling us is that there is a personal connection that God Himself breathed into us His own breath. And we became a living soul before God with a concept of eternity, a concept of meaning in life. And so consequently, every person has value regardless of their race, which is popular today, regardless of their ability or disability, which is a little bit popular, but not as much, regardless of their stage in the process of birth, preborn. Or born. I don't know if you know this or not, but if you go and destroy Carner Blue butterfly egg cases in the pine bush right now, you can be arrested. You just violated a federal uh, law because they're an endangered species. The egg cases, unborn caterpillar, unborn butterflies. You see, our science world recognizes that those are valuable and that there's life in there, that it's different from destroying the plant. So I'm not arguing whether that should be or not, but we miss that when it comes to human being. All of life is important and a priority to God, not based on age, not based on your what you give to the community or to the greater good, not based on anything other than the fact that we've been made in the image of God. And folks, when God made you in His image, you are not junk. The psychological side of it is, you do not need to beat down on yourself. Well, I'm not as good as this person, and I'm not as smart as that one in school. I'm not as fast as that one, and I don't know if I can do that. And my brother's better than me, and my sister's better looking than me. By the way, be careful, because the God in heaven's the one that painted the picture on your face and everybody else's face. And you criticize your own picture or somebody else's picture, you're actually criticizing the painter, God. And so we need to be careful with our criticisms. We need to be careful about the way we approach people. And we don't have time to dig deeply into that. But all of the way we are to treat and to love one another, there comes out of this truth that we are all made in the image of God. Second thing, that's our identity. The second thing is our responsibility. When God made Adam and he made Eve to help him, we'll talk about that in a minute, he gave them dominion, authority, responsibility over everything, the fish, the seas, the earth, the birds, all the creeping things, everything. And he put Adam and Eve in the garden. I have not read that yet. I will read a piece of that a little bit later on. He put them in the garden to tend them. In fact, like it or not, work is not the result of sin. He made Adam and Eve to do work long before they ever did anything wrong. He gave them responsibility to oversee and to be stewards and to make something in this world. See, whether or not somebody believes in God, 
Every day, you and I function in this world. We live in buildings, and we <laughs> drive cars, and we, we oversee. We care about whether it's the environment. We may not agree with where all the laws land on everything, but the reason we do that as people is because God put it inside of us. Our dogs don't care about what happens in, in Tibet. Our dogs don't care about somebody else's education. They just want to know, can they have a full stomach and a place to sleep and be safe, right? But God put inside of us something that we want to tend to and take care of. That's why people who don't know Jesus actually care about people's their poverty or care about their health care or care about their education because God put it inside of us that we're made in His image. That doesn't come because we know Jesus. That comes because we're made in the image of God as a children of God and we have a care and a steward of everything in the world that we see around us. So, pragmatically, what that means is when you go to work tomorrow, you're actually doing God's work. Just as much as if you're volunteering in the cafe and serving in the kids' room or you're out there sweeping and shoveling and stuff with the snow, God gave us this world and said, go and enjoy and be fruitful and be a steward of it. When you're planting your gardens and when you're doing all the things that you're doing, you are living that out, which means that everything we ultimately ought to do is to glorify God in a connection with Him. Profound impact on our life. This will change the way you live from just living for you and doing your thing to saying, oh my goodness, God, everything I've got is for you. Third thing, God gives us our biology as well as our sexuality. He created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There's five different words that are used in here. There's the, the man which is the mankind, I talked about that. There's the man and woman, which is a play in words in Hebrew. It's kind of like English man and then woman, kind of you know, similar words. And then this male and female are two more words. And I want you to recognize that God said this and gave identities to Adam and Eve before there was culture, before there were stereotypes, before there was social media, before there were even clothes. Like, you're a man and you're a woman. He gave them a biology and he said, be fruitful and multiply. Now, we've done some science. We're not going to go down to that class, all right, talking about that part of biology. But he made men and women for each other, and he made it clear the role in that, in that there would be a procreation, there would be a reproduction that's built into our biology and our sexuality, and our gender is combined into that. Now, folks, I realize, by, by the way, I, according, I read some little NBC did a poll, I don't know how scientific, if it's NBC, and I'm like, okay, I'm not sure all the media, but they came out and said two-thirds of people still believe there's only two genders. Two-thirds. So we, if, if you believe there are only two genders, you don't need to think that the whole world has lost its mind, because it hasn't. Two-thirds still understand that. And that's from an organization that I would think would lean, you know, if it was bigger, you know, a worse percentage, they would for sure share it. And so... I want you to recognize that gender in the eyes of God and as He made this world is not a construct 
of culture, of clothing, or expression of oneself. And to me, if a, a young student, let's pick it elementary, middle school, or young adult, because that's when most of these things surface, is struggling with their own identity, who I am, and expressions of things, it makes a lot more sense to help them to recognize the incredible person that they've been made and the gender and the biology that they are, but say, buddy, you don't have to be like the other boys in the room. You don't, it's okay if you feel and you know, you're like, if you like art more or you're more creative or more sensitive or more whatever, it's okay. It's all right. It's okay to say to the young woman, it's like, you don't have to wear dresses. It's okay. You don't have to fit this mold. Go. That's fine. That's, it doesn't make you a bad woman. You don't need to change your gender on the inside to get comfortable with yourself. In fact, I would submit to you, science ought to be telling people that there's a sociological, psychological, emotional thing going on there, not a biological thing going on there. And I would submit that unfortunately there are doctors increasingly in the medical world that are really more along the lines of Nazi Germany's experimentation on people in surgeries, trying to fix something that's an internal concern externally. And that makes no scientific sense whatsoever. Now, as Christians, we need to be careful because anyone struggling with those identities, those are real. And, and our young kids and young adults are truly getting confused and they are getting told things that are not healthy and wise and good. But culture around us, when you are have no culture here, there is, this is stripped naked clean, right? Like you can be all kinds of things and it's okay. Don't allow the culture to dictate to you one way or the next. In fact, I still don't understand it. Most of all of that transgenderism is still the more liberal world trying to fit people into the stereotypes. And it's so weird to me. Like, how, like why can't you just recognize that, you know, there's so much variety and difference. And so anyway, God has given us that. And helping people walk through those things and owning those expressions, dealing with the hurt and the looks and the pain and the different things that are going on around them, that's a whole lot healthier. And I'm not touching on the whole homosexuality and all that. We've done that in the past, but it's clear. God made a husband and a wife together, and that's part of that whole sexuality. Fourth thing I'm done, I'm, I'm done is that God also gave us community. And that I really, I'm jumping to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 really unpacks the whole God-making people. We don't have time to look at all of it, but, but let's just read just a quick passage, and then I'll, I'll be done. Then in verse 18 of chapter 2, the Bible says this, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. I have to pause there. Ladies, I want you to recognize this. The word helper is significant. The word helper is used of God many times in the Bible as what God does to help us as people. I will lift my eyes to the, to the hills from whence my help comes from. Same word. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You do realize, lady, that God is, is stronger than us. So when God gives a man a helper, 
He's giving the empowered, strong person the help to the man because the man is the one that needs the help. You tracking where I'm going in this? You don't need anybody to tell you that you need to be empowered and be, you already are by definition. God kind of did that thousands of years ago. You are the helper to the man. It is not good for the man to be alone. Lord, help him. He needs some help. You know what I mean? And he gave, God gave him you. You are the strength in there. And men, by the way, you ought to recognize your wives as a strength in there. There's so many things in here that straightens out. And we could, this is not about marriage primarily. There's so many big things that we just need to kind of hit the high points. But you, you hear where I'm headed with that. And so God, you know, out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field, bird in the heavens and all of that, and, and brought them to man, brought them to Adam, see so he would call them. I can't even think of all of those names. Let me jump down further down. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep. So Adam's naming all these animals, and they're like, oh, look, there's a man and there's a woman. Zebra, there's a man, a woman, whatever, right? And he's kind of like, well, there's just me. Kind of like, well, what's happened? God was showing Adam that, dude, you need help here. Let me send you somebody. So God made him fall asleep. First anesthesia was by God. Put him to sleep. I lost my place. Where is it? Here it is. Verse 21. To fall a deep sleep upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh. By the way, this is so cool. Rib bone is like the only, one of the, if not the only, it's the main bone that is able to regenerate itself. In fact, when doctors do bone grafts, they pull from their ribs. You can lose a chunk of your bone. If you don't destroy the sheath, it can actually regrow itself, unlike other bones. I didn't know that. It's amazing. And this was written thousands and thousands of years ago. Like, it's not a coincidence that God kind of took a bone. So my picture is, is God probably took just enough bone from Adam to make Eve, and then, like, it, it grew it back. Adam didn't walk around. Hey, honey, don't hit me there. You know, I'm missing. Kinda, that's my weak spot. You know, like, it probably grew back. I can't prove that, but that's my hypothetical theory, and I'm sticking with it. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then man said, this is that last, last bone of my bones, flesh is my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. I say that to, to just say this, that God made Adam and Eve because they needed each other in close intimate relationship. I don't mean just physically, I mean in every way. And he gave us that community. God made us in His image to relate to Him. And He gave us a tremendous responsibility and authority to be stewards over this world, unlike other creatures and animals. And He gave us our own biology, individually of who we are, so that we in turn can relate to others in a close way. And he gave a man and a wife, a husband and wife together to be the expression ultimately of the, the ultimate closeness of that relationship within the marriage of a man and a woman, gave us that community. And, and consequently, since Adam and Eve, obviously, you know, the whole relationships that we have with each other, that God wanted us to spread and multiply throughout the earth. But it's this very creation, the very core and fabric of all of society comes down to that marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. Singles, that's not to say that you are not a significant part of that, you know, the fabric of the culture and world around us. Absolutely you are. But when the husband and wife relationships are torn and broken and dysfunctional, and people are changing all kinds of things about themselves, 
that ultimately that culture and that community begins to fragment and begins to fall apart. And it's sad, but that's where we are. But ultimately, to, to, the takeaway with this is that God made Adam, and he made Eve to be the strong helper for Adam. And out of that relationship, God unpacks this force in Ephesians and, and other books that the wife is to be the helper to the man, that he's to lead, they're to be together as equals. There's nothing in Scripture that says they're not equals, and they're to complement one another. But the husband is to lead in that home. And the, they're to lead together, but he's also to lead. And so all of this flies, I know, in the face of popular thinking and everything that's out there today. But we're talking about the God who designed it. And so it, it takes some arrogance to go to a piece of equipment or to a tool or anything and say, well, I know more than you do. That wasn't designed. I, I know how that should, should be designed, or I'm going to use it differently the way you designed it. It takes a little bit of guts, right, to do that. And yet the God of heaven who made this world gave us the blueprint in two chapters of who we are, where we came from, our relationships to each other, our own individual identities, and how we function in this world around us. And it's incredible. And it's sufficient. And it's reasonable to believe that. In fact, it's no less reasonable to believe that than it is to think in evolution. In fact, I think it's a whole lot makes more sense to believe this because I don't see the missing links. I see they're all missing. That's the whole point. They're just not in there. They haven't found any. And truthfully, they're not going to. So I don't know what you needed to hear today. I don't know if you needed to be encouraged, challenged. You're like, Sean, there was anything in there I hadn't heard before and didn't believe. Praise God. Some of you might be like, huh, I need to think through that. I kind of was thinking the evolutionary things. I believe God. I love Jesus. But maybe you need to explore that a little bit more. I don't know. But maybe... Maybe there's some other things, like your own identity is so strong. And rather than just caving to some other things, maybe you need to think through about what God put inside of you. It's incredible. You don't need the culture telling you who you are and that you're incredible. The God of heaven has already told you that, and he put that in there. And we should celebrate that. So I'm going to end there, and I'm going to pray. This morning we are celebrating our, our Lord's Supper. And we aren't to this part of the story yet where we screw this whole thing up and then God's busy fixing it. That's coming. But the celebration of the Lord's Supper is the after effect that God made us and gave us this incredible room to play in and we trashed it. And we broke everything and we broke walls down and broke lights and lit it on fire and just destroyed everything. And God as a parent walked in and said, yeah, that's bad, but I still love you. And I'm going to fix that. And I'm going to repair the damage that now you've even done in my relationship with you. And I'm going to bring my only son, Jesus, to die to pay the sins that you've created in this whole mess of this world that I put together perfectly. 
because I still love you and I want you to know me. That's what we celebrate with the Lord's table is that we sin before a holy God and he still was committed to us and he sent his son Jesus to redeem us on the cross to pay for our sins, even though we ruined this beautiful picture that he's painted for us in these two chapters. And he did it in such a way that as we see that and as God draws us to him and we respond in faith and surrender our lives to him, the God of heaven lives inside of us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And so this, the Lord's Supper is what Jesus told us to do to remind us regularly. He didn't say exactly how often to do it, but just, just said do it. And when you do it, remember the life that you have now with me is because of what my son did for you. So this morning, God created us and made us amazing. But the Lord's Supper we're ending is he also redeemed us and he saves us and he restores that broken relationship. And so if you have trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior at some point in your life where you've surrendered to him and recognize that you're a sinner and you've become a child of his, we invite you to participate in this Lord's Supper with us as a church body. This is a church family. It's something that's to be done together. It's individual in that we remember our relationship with God, but it's also a collective or a corporate thing to do that we together celebrate this and share with one another. And so I'm going to pray, and then when I do, we'll, we'll celebrate that together. Pray with Thank you for listening. Join us every Sunday at 10 a.m. at River of Life Church or find us online on Facebook, YouTube, or at riveralbany.com.